Well, good morning. It is very good to be back with you. It seems like a lot's happened since August. I was here in August, and you now have a new pastor, Pastor Eric, coming after the first of the year and rejoicing with you back in Louisville as we've been praying for you, trusting God was going to help you discover who his man was for this, this pulpit, this position, uh, this privilege of being an under-shepherd of the Great Shepherd here at Cape Bible Chapel. So I'm excited with you uh, and rejoicing with you in the provision of God. And of course, Eric doesn't come alone. I, I understand I married and two children, so he is going to be blessed. They are going to be blessed for being among you. Uh, I'm blessed to be among you, and I'm excited to open God's Word with you. But before I do, I need to pray just that I would say exactly what He wants me to say and, and in a way that He wants me to say it. So would you pray with me? Well, Father in heaven, I do submit my life to you right now in the preaching of your Word. And I'm begging you, O God, to sanctify my motives so your glory is the great end for which I preach. Even as I pray that, Lord, I'm asking that you would unclog our ears, the ears of our hearts, so we can hear, truly hear from you this morning. Oh, Lord, I pray that I would be so tethered to this text that what we hear is actually your word proclaimed today and not some clever wisdom of the world, which is really not wisdom at all. Lord, I thank you for these saints that gather here Thank you for this church and the way you've cared for it over the decades. And now we look with great hope into a new season of gospel ministry here at Cape Bible Chapel. Thank you for allowing me the privilege of being a part to stand in the gap, as it were, while we wait for Pastor Eric to take up the reins here. So Lord, be with us now. This is a specific moment in your redemptive history. And I pray to be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take you back in time when I was a senior in high school, not high school, but college. Well, I'm older than I was. Uh, back in the Pacific Northwest at the University of Washington. And I was growing in my faith then, and a dear friend of mine as well, and we needed to serve. Maybe you've been there, you are there right now, where you are just aching to be in the front lines of gospel ministry. Well, when you're 22 years old with no Bible training, no one's really given you a pulpit. Uh, but you want to preach. You don't know how to preach, but you just think, I, I just need to be proclaiming God's word. So what do you do when no one's given you a pulpit, but you feel this undeniable un, uh, urge to preach and to proclaim the gospel? Well, you do what everybody else would. You, you create your own pulpit, right? You start your own ministry. And so Mark and I did that. In South Seattle, his father-in-law had a little church that we could use on Sunday evenings to create our own church service, basically. But it was an outreach, really, a parachurch ministry to, and I'm dating myself here, to Gen Xers. Right? So I see I'm in my 40s now. This is back in the 90s when we were going to reach 20-somethings for Christ. So all the rage was, how do you reach the Gen Xers? Right? Well, we were going to create a service that did that. Now, what Mark and I decided to do, because both wanted to preach, both wanted to, to be pastors in training, we, we alternated Sundays, so Sunday evening, 7 o'clock, where he one Sunday would have responsibility for organizing the whole service, bringing in the worship team, whoever was going to sing. He would preach, and no one would tell him what he was going to preach. He would just decide what he wanted to go through. And then I would get the next Sunday, and we would just alternate Sundays. And I loved it. It was great. But about two months into what was a one-year ministry before I went on 
uh, for an internship in another church, um, something started to well up in me. Mark and I had a history. We played sports together, and we loved to compete. And so what happened, uh, this devilish impulse in us to compete with one another. And we were going to see who was going to have the bigger service on Sunday nights and who is going to be the better preacher and who is going to bring in the better musicians and who is going to have the better hour and a half and who is going to really reach the 20-somethings for Christ. It wasn't going to be him. It was going to be me, right? So I remember, like it was yesterday, preaching out of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. And the irony, the gospel irony of this is, you know, Timothy is all about Paul pouring into his young apprentice Timothy to exhort him to flee youthful desires like pride. And so here I'm preaching these things, realizing I'm doing this for me. I mean, this was happening in the midst of the sermon. I'm looking out on this sea of people similar to this, and I'm, it's all about me. And I'm knowing it, not after the fact, but during it. And I'm starting to sweat, and I'm feeling like this is wrong. This is really wrong. But I somehow got through my outline. But I went home afterwards, and I'm renting a house with four other buddies. And I'm here in the Green Lake area of Seattle, if you know that, and I'm up what felt like all night, but it was the wee hours of the morning, and I'm in this rocking chair we had, lights are out, and I'm looking out of the front window, and every now and then a car would come by with its headlights on, but I I don't care, I'm just weeping. I'm just weeping because of what I had become and what this ministry had become for me. In other words, a platform to exalt my glory, to make a name for myself. And one of the texts that God was impressing upon me, among many, I mean, this was hours I'm in this rocking chair just feeling the discipline of the Lord. But one of the texts he just brought home crystal clear to me was Mark 10, 45. Mike, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. What do you think you're doing? And he set me on a new trajectory. He said, ministry for you, Mike, will not be like this. Why? Because the Christian life is not going to be like this. It's not just true for ministry, oh, get pride out of the way in ministry. No, it's about life with Christ. He will be preeminent, we won't. And so I love this verse that we're going to get to this morning, verse 45 in Mark chapter 10. It's deeply personal to me. And brothers and sisters, I know this is a lesson we have to keep learning, right? But let us learn this again for the first time. Christ will be all and in all. And we will, and I'll try to explain this later, have this glorious, beautiful, helpful, gospel, hope-giving position of second to Jesus. And you want to be there. You want to be there. I want you to be there. The loft, that's what it was called. The loft, this ministry that God used in the discipline of my life. It had become for me a platform for the exaltation of me. Not the glory of God, in the service of others. And isn't this the essence of pride? Indeed, pride works tirelessly in the service of self, right? That's what it does for a living. It works to exalt you, to exalt me. We know the gospel here at Cape Bible Chapel, but let let me remind you, the coming of Christ into the world signals the death of human boasting and the creation of an army of servants armed with the gospel of grace. And this army of which you are a part by faith is commissioned to go into all the world and make disciples, not of ourselves, but of Jesus Christ, the Lord. My prayer for this sermon and the weeks leading up to this 
invitation. Is that we would hear the death knell of human pride in the glorious servanthood of Jesus. So the Cape Bible Chapel is increasingly, you're there, but let's be more, right? Increasingly one who boasts only in the cross of Christ as you give your lives for the eternal good of others. Right? So that, that's my prayerful burden, that all that would happen in the next minutes. Well, to that end, if you're not there already, would you turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, or tap, maybe tap here, your iPad, uh, or just listen, because I'll be quoting this passage throughout, right? I want to ground us in this passage. So if you're not a note taker and you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. Just, just listen and pray that God gives you ears to hear. But Mark 10, 35 to 45, let me give you the brief context you know in the Gospel of Mark, or if you don't, I'll tell you, Jesus gives three predictions of his suffering and death. They're, they're central to this Gospel. Three times he will predict for his disciples his suffering, his death, and three times they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand it. It's just going to be lost on them. He does it in chapter 8, he does it in chapter 9, and then he does it a third time here in chapter 10 that we'll look at in detail. The disciples did not have categories for the suffering and death of Jesus. It was not how it was going to end up for them at this point. They're saying, no way. You can talk that way if you want, Jesus, but we got other plans for you. We've got a glory, an earthly glory for you that's going to happen. we got a throne for you to sit on here, now. We're going to make you king. So you can talk all you want, but we really know what's going to happen. Remember Peter in chapter 8? The first prediction of Jesus' suffering and death. And what does Peter do? He has the audacity to take Jesus aside. That's what the text says. He took Jesus aside. That's a, that's a bad idea. <laughs> that's a bad idea. To take the Lord of glory aside and set him straight. And that's what Peter proceeded to do. Now, Jesus, come here. Can, you can picture it. Um, I know what you just said. Uh, I know you said you're going to suffer and die, but no, no, no. We got other plans for you, okay? And what, how did Jesus respond? Harshly, you might say. Get behind me, Satan. Your mind is set on the things of man, not the things of God. You're not getting what I'm about. Well, it happened again in chapter 9, right? We see the disciples there totally missing what Jesus had said and instead arguing about who was the greatest. Remember that? Now we're in chapter 9. Not just Peter, but the others going, oh, I know he just talked about suffering and death and flogging and insults and scorn. Come on. I'm going to be the greatest when this throne gets propped up and we restore the throne of David. Oh, have you seen my... I've developed my skills over the last three years. I'm really something. And I'm going to be great in this new kingdom. Greater than you, actually. Far greater than you. Can you believe it? That's how they start talking. Right on the heels of Jesus saying, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Of course, on the third day I'll be raised. But totally lost on them. This path of sacrifice and suffering that he was on and anyone that would follow him is on. Well, now here we come to the third prediction of Jesus' suffering and death. And after this third prediction, we see James and John. Now the lens comes more, more not on the 12, but on two 
James and John jockeying for position and status, demonstrating their woeful understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. So again, just in one ear, out the other. Heard about the death, heard about that, but, but I want to be the greatest in this kingdom. And I'm going I'm to actually break with the other ten, the two brothers. They're going to break with the other ten and go claim their place in this glory, this earthly glory that they're drunk on. In our text, Jesus offers a merciful corrective, doesn't he? By helping us see what it truly means to be a disciple. In other words, in the light of the cross, this is how we should live. That's what this text is about. In the light of the cross, this is how we are to live. So for those who have ears to hear, the image that comes to my mind when I look at Mark 10, 35 to 45, is a majestic symphony in four movements. Not every symphony has four movements, but this one does. And they're glorious, beautiful, winsome movements. And so let me, let me tell you where I'm going. First movement I've just titled, An Audacious Request. And it is that. There's probably a stronger word for it, but the English language fails me. I don't know how to make it more than audacious, but it's at least that. It's at least that. Second movement I want you to hear in this climactic move toward Christ a sobering response, a sobering response. See, these disciples were out of their right minds. And Jesus is going to respond in a way to bring them back to sound thinking, sound gospel logic. And then third movement, I want you to hear a kingdom not of this world. It's a beautiful note that we see in this text. I want you to hear a kingdom not of this world. It sings of that. Then fourth and finally, this great climactic verse that is all crescendoing toward the glorious servanthood of Jesus. Grounds it all in his person, in his work. So, let's hear each movement in turn. Movement number one, an audacious request. Look with me at verses 35 to 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Can you do that for us? Yeah, one of us at your right, one of us at your left, in your glory. We want to be there, right right next to you. Sam, is that good? Let's slow down and and, and hear this again. Look at verse 35. Uh, It's going to show how superficial these disciples' understanding is of Jesus, why he's here, what he's here to do. Verse 35, teacher, I'm going to read it a certain way. I think I'm interpreting always, right? I'm interpreting even as I read. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We got a request that we want you to fulfill because really you're, you're in this for us, right? You're going to open these doors of of honor and glory for us, right? And do you hear the mercy in verse 36? I mean, don't, don't just skim past this. Jesus actually answers the question. He entertains the question. That should blow our mind in itself. That he actually entertains such, a, such an audacious request from sinful creatures. But he does. I love this. Well, what do you want me to do for you? 
What do you want me to do for you? And if you know, you know the story, perhaps. You know what Jesus has a point in everything he says. And he's going to, he's going to draw out of them what he then needs to correct in them. So he does it with, what do you want me to do for you? And they proceed. He lets them go. Verse 37. Well, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. The disciples see their progression to Jerusalem. I mean, they know where they're going. But, but they see their progression to Jerusalem as one of grandeur. They see in Jesus more of a political Messiah that would go to Jerusalem and, as I've said, restore the glory of the fallen throne of David. And they want in. They want in these halls of power. They want their seat at the table right next to Jesus, those positions of honor. You know, in Jewish custom, the place of highest honor was at the center of the company, followed by the right and the left hand, respectively. These brothers, James and John, hope to honor Jesus while honoring themselves. That's really what's at play here. They want to honor Jesus, but, but only insofar as they're honoring themselves. Well, there's an application for us this morning, isn't there? At least there is for me. It forces me to ask this all-important question. What do I want Jesus to do for me? What do you want Jesus to do for you this morning? The answer to this all-important question exposes our true motives in our relationship with Christ. Are we seeking our own glory or the glory of God? We've got to be honest this morning. If you can't be honest at church, you know, where are you going to be honest? We've we got to be able to ask before the Lord, why am I wanting this, that, or the other? What's driving me to do this, that, or the other? What's the end in everything I do? But I want to get specific. I want to get specific. How easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-glory. You ever experienced that? Or worse, how easily self-glory is disguised as worship and discipleship. You may know, but you're just using worship and discipleship as a cloak. For what you really want, not the glory of God, but the glory of yourself. I've been there as I've shared, and I've had to learn that lesson again and again and again. Now, there are gross examples of what I'm talking about in the church, like the health and wealth movement. Right? Not a problem here. I know that. But think of the health and wealth gospel. You know, Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, you can have that Mercedes Benz. Now, if anyone drives, it's okay. You drive it. But is that why you want to follow Jesus? So you can be perfectly healthy. That's the end. Not his glory, but your health. Or your bank account. Or your status. Or your power. Or your prestige. That's the health and wealth. Blasphemy. That's what that is. It's all about you. It terminates on self, not on God and his glory. That's how you know it's a false gospel. It puts man at the center. And then there's different forms or various forms of liberation theology, okay? But, but what about us? Like, so those are the gross examples, the ones we can point to and go, yeah, clearly. Motives are wrong in those systems, but let's bring it closer to home. What about us? In what ways do we approach Christ as if he ever lives, not to intercede for us, but to do our bidding, but to do our bidding? Why do you want that job? Why do you want that relationship? Why do you want to be healthy? 
Why do you put that status on Facebook? Why do you post that picture on Instagram? Why do you tweet? What's driving you in everything you do? And do you just, just do those things and then say, Oh, Jesus, it's about you. And all the while, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, that everything driving you is yourself. That's how deceiving pride can be. How deceitful. James has a word for us, doesn't he, in chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. He warns us. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's what's going on with James and John. They're so driven by selfish ambition that what they're doing is committing spiritual adultery. Which is a form of hatred toward God. When we are dominated by pride and self-glory, we are actually hating God. We're at enmity with Him at that moment of adultery. James and John were falling to selfish motives. That was the cause of their fall. These passions in themselves that they wanted satisfied. Make me great, Jesus that's why we're following you, right? That's why I've given up everything these last three years so I could sit at your right hand. So I could be exalted. So we, what do we do? What do we do when this happens? If we're honest, it does happen. What do we do with it? So we pray with every request, oh God, sanctify my motives so that your glory is the end in everything I seek. That's how we have to pray, right? We have to pray. God, sanctify cleanse, purify my motives so I don't preach for anyone but you. It's not about me in this pulpit. Oh, public ministry is a dangerous thing to engage in. I talk to my students at Southern Seminary. I say, every time you get in that pulpit, you are managing risk. And what's the risk? That we would insert ourselves as the end for which we preach. And it's not. And I say, we got that's why we commend expository preaching at Southern Seminary. And that's why Pastor Eric, I trust, is an, an expositor, right? Because you manage that risk by staying tethered to the text of God's Word. So I hope to do that, continue to do that in these minutes. Oh, God, sanctify our motives. So your glory is the end in everything I see. Well, that's the first movement. I hope you hear. An audacious request. But here we go. We're staying on this crescendo to the climax of Christ. Movement number two. Would you hear a sobering response? A sobering response. A response Jesus is going to mercifully give the disciples to set their minds right. Because they're actually acting in a way, if you know the gospel, that's insane. Insane. Look with me at verses 38 to 40 and this sobering response by our merciful Lord. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking, James and John. You, you have no idea what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, as pride does, we are able. Do you hear? Of course. No problem. 
Don't you know me? I mean, haven't you seen how? Of course. No big deal. So we got the seats? We are able. And Jesus continues with them, says to them, the cup that I drink, oh, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus is basically saying, James, John, you have no idea what you're asking because you are completely missing the heart of my mission. The disciples were drunk on the alcohol of ease and prestige. Their gospel had no place for suffering and death. They still didn't get the word about persecutions in verse 30 of our very chapter. See, Jesus had been warning them, preparing them, trying to ground them in a right understanding of the gospel and what it means to follow Jesus. And so in all those wonderful things that come for the disciple, also persecutions, sufferings, Trials, afflictions. And the disciples hadn't heard that. They didn't incorporate that into their thinking. Their storyline, their narrative for Jesus and themselves was far different than what Jesus was telling them at this moment. They still didn't get the word about the gospel that would make all the difference in their life. That is suffering, persecution. So the images of cup and baptism, we have to deal with those, are here. Why does Jesus bring these up? What do they mean? First, in relation to Jesus. What do they signify for him? Well, Jesus recognizes, he needs his disciples to recognize this. Jesus recognizes that his messianic mission is to drink the cup of God's wrath for sin and to suffer under the baptism of God's judgment on sin. That's what the disciples were missing at this point. They didn't understand the full import of the cup and baptism as they relate to Jesus. And how do, how do we feel this cup? Let's take the cup first. I mean, Jesus understood what was, he was going to become sin, the one who knew no sin, he was going to become sin and receive from the Father wrath for that sin. He was going to be treated at the cross, as if he had committed every sin of every believer that would ever believe in history and in the future. And he knows this, and he feels this. So how do we feel it? We go to the garden with him. We go to the garden, right? When Jesus is crying out to the Father in Mark 14, and what's he saying? Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, please. What I will, but what you will. He felt the weight of this wrath, this propitiation he was going to need to make for a people more numerous than the stars in the heaven and the sand on the seashores. Then the baptism. I want to feel the weight of this for Jesus. So I go to Luke 12, verse 50. Where Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and oh, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I'm going to be immersed. I'm going to be immersed under the flood of God's judgment on sin. And oh, what agony I am in until it's accomplished. 
It's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The cup and the baptism is summed up in, in this verse. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the very righteousness of God. He drank the cup and he underwent the baptism of judgment so you and I, believer, don't have to. That's grace. That's grace. But astoundingly here, Jesus applies the cup and the baptism to James and John. He says, oh, you will drink from this cup and you will undergo this baptism. But in what sense? Because I want to affirm good orthodox Christology here. There is only one suffering servant. There is only one atoning sacrifice. There's only one who would receive the judgment. He did this for us vicariously. Jesus did. So I have to, in what sense then, what's he talking about when he says, you will drink from the cup and you will undergo this baptism? Well, I commend to you this interpretation. He's not talking about a judicial sense. Not, not as in the sense that Jesus went through it, but in a moral sense appropriate for followers of Jesus. There is a moral sense in which Jesus' disciples will participate in the cup and baptism of Jesus. This imagery refers to the persecutions and sufferings that will inevitably fall upon those who follow Christ. And why do we go through these? For our sanctification and glorification. To set us apart in Christ, to purify us, make us practically holy, resulting in our eventual glorification. That's what he's referring to here. James, John, you hear him saying, don't you know what it means to follow me? You will drink from this cup. You will undergo this baptism, but you're not understanding what this means. You need to understand what this means. In other words, verse 39 is a reminder to James and John and to us that sacrifice and suffering is the way of Jesus. Not a way, but the way of Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves at this point, have we counted the cost of following Christ? Have we heard this sobering response of what it means to be a disciple? Do we know what we're asking when we ask to follow Jesus, to be one of his children? Do we know? Do we understand? Have we counted the cost? Do we realize what we've signed up for. Or, this is what I worry about in broader evangelicalism, maybe not here, but or has the American dream so infused itself into our gospel that when suffering and persecution comes, we raise our fist to God over the injustice of it all. How could this be happening to me? I've given up everything to follow you. And I hear the voice of Jesus say, I went to the cross and you're going to follow in my footsteps. Your way to glory is the same way I went. Trust me. Trust me. And come, follow me. The Apostle Paul understood this. I want to think like him. Oh, I want to think like Philippians 3, 10 to 11. I want the mind of Christ like this, where Paul says this crazy thing, this thing that is so otherworldly. I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection 
and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow, in any way possible, I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, there is a fellowship in Christ's sufferings that we're called to participate in. And it's not just Paul, right? Let me bring Peter in. First Peter was read earlier, chapter 1. I want to read to you from chapter 4 of 1 Peter, so we get this. We understand that the way of Jesus is the way of sacrifice and suffering. 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13. The Apostle Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. And stop right there for a minute and go, what's going on? in Peter's time to where he would say this. It's no accident that he brings up fiery trial, calls it a fiery trial. Disciples were being burned as, as, as torches to light the path of Nero's garden. And he says, don't be surprised when that happens to you. Don't be surprised when you get lit up like a torch so you can light Nero's way up to his garden. That's so strange. That's not strange. That's normal. And you want to go, Peter, wow, are you, are you serious? That's, I'm, not to be, I'm, I'm surprised when my friend gets lit up like a torch, like a light. That does surprise me. And he says, don't be surprised. What a word that is so hard for us to hear in our cozy, comfy America. I, I am so cut to the heart by that because I don't live there enough. I need to live there. I just want to get to Starbucks. Right? I, I want a grande. And, and he's saying, don't be surprised when people are perishing for the faith. I don't like to wait in lines, right? God, help me. Help me to feel this text and live accordingly and he says don't be surprised and don't act as if something strange is happening to you but he goes on but rejoice rejoice in this suffering rejoice in this persecution insofar as you share Christ's sufferings there it is again there's a fellowship in Christ's sufferings rejoice that you share in it because when he's revealed you're going to rejoice in his glory because you will receive the goal of your faith the salvation of your soul it's worth it it's worth it, saint. Let us be sober-minded about the call of Christ. That's what I hear in this second movement. Let us be sober-minded about the call of Christ. Let us truly count the cost of discipleship and realize what we're signing up for. Well, movement number three, and I want to hear, it's, it's glorious. It's, it's a kingdom not of this world. And we need to hear this note, this beautiful note of gospel hope. He's calling us into a kingdom not of this world. And you want that, don't you? You look at the kingdoms of this world. And if you're honest, you don't want that. You know it won't satisfy, not ultimately. And you see how tainted the kingdoms of this world are with sin. And so Jesus mercifully shows us, lifts the veil, if you were, and says, look at my kingdom. Look how beautiful it is. Hear the notes that are sung about my world. Verses 41 to 44. Look with me. And when the ten heard it, they heard James and John talking to Jesus. Right? 
when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They're angry with James and John. And you might think, well, they're angry because James and John don't get it. And they need to understand what the gospel is all about. Well, I think they're angry because they didn't get there first. They're like, oh, I wanted, I wanted that seat. Now James is going to get it. Man, or John's going to be there. Ah, oh, I wanted that chair. Man, it's like my kids when they all want to sit in the front seat. You know, Anna gets there first. Sam's like, oh, man, in the back again. So they're not indignant for the right reasons, right? I think they wanted to get there first. Verse 42. Well, Jesus calls them to him and says to them, I love this. The Lord just is going to teach them. He's going to bring them together and go, look, I I need to pour into you more because you're not getting it. You're not getting it. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Emphasis on over. Get the idea of what these Gentile rulers do. They lord it over. They have a heavy hand over the people. But, here's here's the great contrast. Verse 43. She said, that's that's not my world. That's not my kingdom. That's not how it's going to be in my kingdom. But, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Not might be. Must be slave of all. Gentile rulers. What's he, who's he talking about here? Probably a reference to the Romans since Israel was being ruled by Rome. And what do these rulers do? What, what's the image that he's hoping to stir up in his disciples? Well, a group of leaders that lord it over the people. And we use that phrase somewhat now. We get... We get what that means. You don't need to know Greek to know what's going on here. We've got a, a people that are leading such that they exploit the people. They exercise dominion over the people. They rule for their own advantage. They gain mastery or power over others. They subdue. That's what these rulers do. They subdue people. They don't try to help them flourish, but they subdue them. They function as a dictator or a tyrant. Some of you have been that. Some of you have have been crippled under that. So you know what's going on here. Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom's going to be ruled. Not by you, James and John. That's not how it's going to be. That's not how it's going to be. At the heart of Gentile rulership is ruling for yourself. It's all about you. Everything you do terminates on you and your mastery over another person or a group of people. There's the contrast, right, in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And let me make it still harder. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. What what does he mean by these terms, servant and slave? What's going on here? I could give you a word study, but I won't. I'm going to take you back to what I think is the essence of this verse in something Jesus has already said about discipleship back in Mark 8. 34 and 35. Let me read them to you. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus is calling James and John to come and die. Nothing less. 
That's the essence of what it means to be slave of all. You, leader, if you're going to lead, you've got to die to yourself. It's not going to be about you. That's in leadership. But he says, that's the call of the Christian life. You come to me and die, Jesus says. This life you now live in the flesh, you will live by faith in me, the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you or myself for you. That's what I hear him saying. We are crucified with Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Generally, and of course that's what it means then to be a Christian leader. You die to yourself and lose your life in God and the service of others. It's that radical, friends. The gospel calls us to lose our life in the service of God and of others. See, even even the world will say, look, we, we shouldn't have leaders that are evil and oppressive. The world can agree to that. But what Jesus does here is he he makes it still more glorious, harder. He says, let's not just settle for non-evil leaders. I'm not going to just have leaders in my church that are not oppressive. I want them to be servants. I want them to be slaves of everyone they come in contact with. I want them to lay down their life for the glory of me and the good of others. That's what it means to be a Christian. But the good news of the gospel is if you do that by the grace of God, you will save your life. That's the way to truly live. Don't buy the lie of Satan or the world or of your own flesh that says that's a way that will cripple you. You won't attain your full self. You won't realize who you really are. Jesus says otherwise. He says that's the way to experience life and life in its fullness. Well, here we come now to the fourth movement of this majestic symphony, the glorious servanthood of Christ. I want you to hear this. He grounds everything he said now in his own person and work, doesn't he? And I know this because of that little word at the front of verse 45, for, for, so important, for. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So do this. Live this way. Lose your life in the, in the service of God and others because, or here's the reason, I want to ground it in something unshakable, my person and work. Do this because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The ground of our servanthood is the servanthood of Jesus. We are called to live a life of sacrificial giving for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. We would expect otherwise, wouldn't we? What are we talking about here? We're talking about the Lord of glory. We would expect otherwise. This verse should shock us. It should surprise us. It should cause us to pull the brakes and go, wait a minute, what? What did this say? The Son of Man came not to be served? Wait a minute, He's the Son of Man. He's the Lord of glory. We would be right to think otherwise here. In so many ways, this is crazy. But it's gospel. It's gospel. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus, in this verse, identifies Himself with Isaiah's servant of the Lord. 
the suffering servant of the Lord, prophesied 700 years before this incarnation. Jesus is saying, I'm that one that Isaiah prophesied about. Jesus says, I'm the one that's come in service to give my life a ransom for many. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53.10 where we read, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, there it is, ransom. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's what's going on at the cross. What does the word ransom mean? It carries with it the idea of a payment to secure the release of a slave or a captive. Isn't that why Jesus came? To free sinners like us that have been bound in the chains of sin and death and the devil. And he says, I have come to set you free indeed. That's what Messiah does. And we know this because of how Jesus would take the scroll. You know, he'd go into synagogues and they would hand him the scroll and he would read from the scroll and then he would interpret, he would preach, I think, in these synagogues trying to reveal to the people who he was. And I love in Luke 4 when Jesus, as was his custom, goes into the synagogue and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. Remember this? And then he proceeds to read from it. What does he read? He reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty. There it is to ransom, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he handed the scroll back to the attendant and then he sat down. And all these eyes were fixed on him, right? And remember what he says. What does he say to all the people that are looking at him, waiting for a word? Interpret this for us. Preach to us now. Give us a good sermon, Jesus. And what does he say? Today. In your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Well, well, that was surprising, I think. They're looking at Jesus, and he's saying, I am the fulfillment of this. You want to be free? You want to be set at liberty? Look to me. I'm the one that fulfills this text. Because of our sin and rebellion, we had an infinite debt to pay to God. The ransom's paid to God. Not to the devil. The ransom's paid to God. And we had an infinite debt to pay. Someone's got to pay this. Either I'm going to pay it in my flesh by receiving the just wrath of God against my sin, or someone's got to pay it for me. But it's going to get paid. And the gospel says Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he's washed it white as snow. That's what he's done at Calvary. By the ransom of his life. The ransom of his life. Well, I want to apply this text for us still more. Mark 10.45 and the reality it reveals is a spear through the heart of pride. Is it not? I think if we get the reality that this text is unfolding for us, it will be a spear through the heart of of human pride. And we need to be pierced by this spear because it's Halloween weekend. Pride is like a vampire lurking around looking for someone to devour. How do you, you know, it might be enough for me to say pride is bad. Pride is evil. 
But I, I want to help you feel how hideous and gruesome and monster-like pride is. I see it in my own life. Maybe you see it in yours. But we see it in the world we look out on. People always boasting in self, boasting in self. And this verse, so verse 45, is a glorious, merciful, gracious spear through the heart of our pride if we would get it. And pride is like a vampire. Why? Because it sucks the lifeblood out of people in a relentless attempt to feed our narcissism. To exist, pride needs attention, rights, privileges, power, acclaim, and applause. Therefore, it makes people an end in them, or a means to an end. Right? I'm going to use you, I'm going to use your life as a means to the greater end in my mind of my glory, my applause, my platform, my power, my prestige. You're, you're a means to an end. My love doesn't terminate on you. It goes back to me. That's why pride is like a vampire. It makes people a means to an end, using them to satisfy its insatiable appetite for glory. Pride is, is a monster that needs to be fed. It's going to eat. It's going to eat. Starve it. Starve it. With verse 45. Right? That's how you starve it. You preach to yourself, verse 45. But that's, that's the manward view of pride and its vampire likeness toward people. But it's worse, friends. It's worse than that. Still worse, pride challenges the throne of God by inserting us as the most important reality in the universe, a position God will never vacate. He's not going to do that. Not for me, not for you. Indeed, God will have no rivals in terms of preeminence. There is one preeminent one the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Nebuchadnezzar and Herod and the words of Isaiah 48, 11, where God declares, my glory I will not give to another. Pride is like a vampire and we need to pierce it with the spear of God's word right through the heart. Now I want to transition here. That's, that's to think of this negatively, Right? And it's, it's, it's a word I hope we need. I know I need it. Often I, I preach out of need. I just, what God does to me in sermon prep, I just offer to you, and hopefully it's helpful. But I need that, that spear in my own life. But then I want to think positively on this, brothers and sisters. What is it like to live a life that isn't boasting in self, but boasting in the Lord and the Lord alone? A window into this Life I want to call you to, not only negatively in the killing of pride, but positively in the living for Christ, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Remember, Paul has this thorn in his side, in his flesh, and he wants so desperately for it to be out. And so he says, I pled with the Lord three times, take this from me, please. And it didn't get removed. But what did he get? Something far better. A promise from the Lord of glory himself that said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Now, I'm taking weakness to be synonymous with the absence of pride, the recognition that Christ is all, I'm not. And Paul says, I can go on to even boast in my weaknesses. Why? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The power of Christ is perfected in our weakness, in our humility. 
in our absence of pride. So I call you to that life. Don't just kill pride because it's wicked and evil. Yes, but live for Christ and experience the power of Almighty God perfected in you. Don't you want that? Greater than anything this world can offer you, you can have the power of God resting on you, being made perfect, but in your weaknesses, it's not going to come through your pride. The power of Christ will not rest on the proud. In fact, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Same, same idea. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Do you see the word even there? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser, right? Even the Son of Man came not to be served. Even, even the Son of Man. How much more should we live solely for the glory of God? and the eternal good of people. That's how it functions. Will I close? How would I close this? By asking, what happened to James and John? Do you remember? What happened to these these jockeying brothers that wanted nothing more than earthly glory and fame and prestige? What happened to James and John? Well, James went on to become a strong leader in the early church and was killed for his services at the hands of Herod's sword. He drank from the cup. He experienced the baptism of Jesus. Well, John went on to write the Gospel of John, three epistles, and through banishment to an island called Patmos, uh, the book of Revelation. So, what a life. Of the many profound things he wrote, perhaps none more important than the following from 1 John three sixteen: By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. James and John finally understood. They understood the gospel. They understood what it means to follow Jesus. The question for us this morning is do we? Do we? Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, thank you for this glorious picture of what it means to follow Jesus. We're praying for the grace to do this, O oh God to, as John wrote, lay down our lives for the brothers in the pursuit of your glory and fame and honor, not our own. Lord, I thank you, we thank you, for your provision in a new pastor coming to this wonderful church in the months to come. And I pray that Pastor Eric would lead in a way that is so otherworldly, that is so consistent with this passage, and I trust he will. Thank you for giving the elders and this whole church family such clear discernment and enthusiasm for your provision. Lord, we're excited for a new season of ministry here at Cape Bible Chapel. We pray that the aroma of Christ would be so obvious here and so compelling to a watching community that they would come and be saved and experience life indeed in the risen Savior. It's in your name we pray this, Lord Jesus, with thanksgiving. Amen.